Hello, everyone. Welcome. There are uh, some folks who are returning after uh, time away. Uh, greetings to you, some folks who are new, uh, and greetings to you as well. So it's very good to have all of you here today. Um, Prior Peter is with us. He will be delivering the conference today. And then I will pick up with uh, our ongoing theme, uh, How to Read Like Bede, next month. I wanted to mention two things briefly before uh, I pass things over to Father, Father Pryor. First of all, we still have uh, two novices who have yet to make their oblation, and they're hoping to come perhaps before November, but maybe not until November. So please continue praying for them, um, uh, Joanne and Alex, as well as for all of our current novices and those who are discerning a vocation uh, to the Oblate community. We have one of them here today, or maybe even several of them. So please keep all of those in your, in your prayers. The second thing is, uh, Prior Peter would like to begin an Oblate choir. Uh, there are a number of oblates and uh, other uh, people who've been involved in the oblate program who have experienced singing. And what we would like to do at the beginning is just to prepare one of uh, Prior Peter's polyphonic masses, the mass settings that we used to use on Sunday mornings, and sing that at the liturgy on the monthly oblate Sunday. So... We would look to begin doing this sometime later this year. I'm not sure if Ju July is too early, but... Um, well, it depends on how many people are free for a rehearsal and how well you read. <laughs> <laughs> it's a question, but of course, you're singing in Latin. Yes. Not the Amundsen, but I love to sing. As you can tell, I am a Amundsen. So, what we would like to propose is uh, rehearsing on... Saturday, perhaps uh, the Saturday before the Oblate Sunday, or perhaps even two Saturdays prior to that, depending on how much time we'll need to prepare. So keep that in mind. I'll be sending out an email about that. But in the meantime, I'd like to pass things over to Prior Pete. Thank you. Yeah, I, I will, uh, why don't you take this for me? All right. Um, yeah, we'll kind of play the choir thing by ear. The, uh, you know, the foundation of our monastery had to do with interest in evangelization through the liturgy in the city. And uh, when I entered, we sang a polyphonic mass every single Sunday. And in fact, we, we sang it every day. Um, we stopped for a number of reasons, but it's, it's always been our intention to try to find a way back in. And I've been hearing from a couple of you that you'd like to participate more in the singing, and um, I can help with that. That was my old profession, so um, I, I, I may just be able to put together a choir with y'all. Um, so, when uh, I was talking to Father Timothy earlier this week, and when I was working on my homily for Sacred Heart, I had uh, so much material, it was very difficult to narrow it down to seven, eight minutes, which I prefer for a weekday solemnity. Um, I thought I would try out some of this material on you and get some feedback from you, and uh, uh, I still haven't organized it very well, but I think you'll hear that there are themes running throughout what I have to say today. And the theme of the talk 
uh, you'll see at the top of this handout, I hope you've all received one, Return to Your Heart. So I got thinking about this because of uh, the iconography of the Sacred Heart. But before we begin, um, why don't we say a prayer together and let's say, say an Our Father and then we'll do this verse at the very top here. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A pure heart create for me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. So uh, I took this verse from Psalm 51 to open with because it talks about purity of heart. And this is a key term for St. John Cashin, who's one of the principal sources of the rule of St. Benedict. So he says the, the, uh, the goal of the monk, final goal, is the kingdom of God. Uh, and to get there, we work on purity of heart. But for us to have pure hearts, we have to sort of know where our hearts are. We have to know what they're doing. We have to acknowledge they exist. Of course, we're not talking about the physical heart. We're talking uh, more in terms of, uh, I'd rather not use the word metaphorical because that sounds like it's pretend, but... The experience of being a human being with convictions, with purpose, um, with commitment, right? This comes from the heart. When you think about someone, if I do this, I'm trying to indicate that I'm serious, right? Uh, if, I, if I do this, I'm, I'm talking about reason. Um, the, the difficulty I recognized in thinking about the sacred heart of Jesus Christ is that I think many people see the iconography and think sentimentality, okay? Because I think oftentimes we think of the heart as being the seat of emotions. But that's not actually the classical view, and I'm going to explain that, and that's a, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about. In the, the Hebrew of this verse, Lev Tahor, Bara Li, Beruach Nachon Chadesh Birkibi, uh, a pure heart create for me. This word bara is what's used in Genesis 1 when God creates the world out of nothing. This, this verb is only used of God. Human beings do not create this verb in Hebrew. The subject is only ever God. So when we're asking God to create a new heart, we're really asking something radical. Okay? And a steadfast spirit, nachon ruach. Nachon uh, has the sense of establishment, Fixity, conviction again. Um, so God's law is fixed. It's nachon. It's strong. It doesn't change. It doesn't waver or fall apart. It, it perseveres. It, it is uh, reliable as a result. Right? Someone who has a pure heart is someone you can count on because they're not going to change their minds easily if they tell you they're going to do something. Right? So, uh, so this is what we want to talk about. Where is our heart? How do we enter into it? How do we consent to the Holy Spirit purifying our heart? Um, now, this is my attempt to answer. I, I, I mentioned my immediate inspiration was Sacred Heart um, last Friday, a week ago. Um, but this is part of a whole series of problems I've been trying to figure out for many, many years. 
Um, one of the things that some oblates, you've heard me ask this over the years, I, I ask, you know, do young people fall in love today? Um, uh, is that something that, that happens? That seems like in most cultures that's a given that people fall in love. Um, we, we recognize, you know, people fall in love. It can be kind of a, a puppy love thing. People can fall out of love, et cetera, et cetera. But so many stories in our culture are about, you know, someone falling in love and then giving up everything for that other person and uh, getting married, usually, right? Having kids, raising a family, and that's the, that's the bedrock of our culture is the family. And uh, that requires this love to have this component of it that's, that's faithful, right? That's persevering. Um, but... What will happen if, there's, if it doesn't have that initial impetus of, of love? Um, another question that's been bothering me for many years, I've done spiritual direction with lots of people over the years, and um, you, know, you hear confessions, go to confession, and one of the things that seems very difficult for a lot of people today, especially younger people, is falling into the same sins over and over and over again. Now, this is true for all of us. We all do this because all of us have certain weaknesses, right? So... Um, I'm not, just because I, I have a certain kind of temperament, I'm not particularly tempted by avarice, for example, but I am tempted by anger a lot. So, so my sins usually revolve around anger in some way or other. Um, but what I'm talking about is when there's a, when we go to confession, we, we want to make a firm purpose of amendment to change, to say, I want to address this weakness that I have, that I keep falling into this sin. And then what I find is that, uh, uh, I've, I've mostly met with men, there's this, this kind of depression that sets in after a while because I don't see any progress, right? And so I, I've been thinking, so what's going on? Why, what's not happening? Or what, what is, should we just accept this and just be weak? Or, or is there some other way that we can look at this that would allow us to, uh, say, make a decision to absolutely focus on that sin? And I think that's a question of the heart, because it's easy to say, oh, I'll do that and think I'm going to do it. But if I'm going to put it in my heart, I have to actually act in certain ways. I have to put, uh, the way the rabbis would talk about it, I have to put a hedge around God's law. So even if I get close to losing my temper, I'm already pushing it away. It doesn't even get close. Uh, rather than sort of hoping when the time comes and somebody disappoints me, uh, I'll just somehow find the resources in myself not to get angry. And uh, trust me, for me at least, that doesn't work. <laughs> I have to do much more preparation if I'm not going to get angry. Um, so that's another question. Here's another one. Why, why, don't, why doesn't anybody write any decent poetry anymore? <laughs> or music, right? Um, why, why is it that we've, we've kind of lost it? I think this is the same question, as you'll see. Um, why do we have a hard time appreciating it? Uh, well, I'm going to have some poems read to you today. Um, so, I think all this has to do with forgetfulness of our hearts. So I want to urge all of us today to remember our hearts and return to our hearts and beg God to purify them and make our spirits steadfast, strong, um, persevering. Uh, so, on this handout I've given you, there, there's a list of books, and I just wanted to mention um, why they're there. This is not to scare you or anything like that with a reading list. These are just the books that I found most helpful for figuring out what the problem is. Okay? 
Uh, because I, I think there's, there's, it's generally acknowledged that going back, depending on who you ask, it's the end of the Middle Ages, it's the Reformation, it's the Enlightenment, it's modernity. Something's changed in Western culture, and we have a hard time understanding when we go back and we read, say, medieval saints like St. Bernard or St. Bonaventure, Peter Damien, um, we hear what they're saying, but we have a hard time acting on it, right? And it, somehow it doesn't connect right away. And we think, well, at some point, I'll, maybe I'll get it. But I think part of the difficulty is we tend to read from a perspective uh, that's foreign to the way they were writing. And so I want to address that. And these are the books that have helped me understand where the problem sits. So that's just, you'll hear me re make reference to these books. And if you're interested, if you're that sort of person, you want to read some of these, great. Um, but don't feel like uh, you're a lesser person if that's not on your schedule right now. Uh, they're not all very easy. I think uh, another way to think of this is uh, the first letter of St. John. He says that we should uh, accept the spirits that acknowledge Jesus Christ come in the flesh. And those that don't admit this um, are uh, spirits of the Antichrist. And uh, so it's interesting, the, the solemnity of the Sacred Heart was instituted in the 18th century universally in the church. So it's after this change starts. It's during the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is all about reason. Reason is a spiritual faculty. And it's easy for people who are spending a lot of time in their heads to forget that their bodies also, right? And so uh, if, if we forget about our bodies, it's harder to identify the spirits that uh, speak of Christ coming in the flesh, the Son of God taking on a body, right? So becoming one with our human nature, with everything in the human nature except sin. So that means inhabiting bodies, having emotions, having a will, uh, having a mind, having a family, having a neighborhood, a city, um, all those things that we have. Getting hungry, etc. having friends, losing friends, uh, all that kind of stuff. So to acknowledge Christ coming to flesh to some extent requires us to acknowledge ourselves as in the flesh. And, and uh, the problem is when I say that, I think people almost uh, inevitably, very subtly equate this again with just bodily drives and emotions. Whereas what integrates those things with our reason and our baser emotions is the center of us, which is the heart. It tells us the things we should like that are honorable to desire. It tells us the thoughts we should have. It tests these thoughts against what's honorable, etc. You know, honor is another one of these words that almost nobody uses anymore. <laughs> um, honor and shame, these sorts of things. Um, these, these are questions of the heart. The answer to all of this is clearly love, charity. But again, this is not uh, affection, less so is it desire. Again, when I talked about falling in love earlier, you know, I don't mean just uh, a, a young man um, being attracted to a woman in, this, in, a, in a physical sense. Uh, I mean being floored because this, is, this person has something that uh, brings out all kinds of new ideas about the world, right? So you hear this um, uh, love songs like Leonard Bernstein's Maria, you know, when you say Maria's name, it's like everything changes. Suddenly I hear things I didn't hear before. I can hear birds singing, right? 
I, uh, I feel like I'm praying. I, I feel like the, the world has, is suffused with supernatural meaning because of this person, right? That, that's not apart from the physical attractiveness of the person in question, but it's certainly not a base attraction. It's, it's, we're not le- lowering it to uh, the, the lowest level of attraction. It's something that encompasses the whole person and draws, this is another thing you see with uh, men who fall in love, it draws them out of themselves. They suddenly want to like, help people. They want to dress well, look good for other people. Uh, right? You, you hear uh, this, this is a trope that used to exist in the culture. And again, I don't know if it does, but um, suddenly a guy has a new haircut and he's wearing nice clothes. And you think, gosh, who's, tight, you know, who's tidying him up, right? And then you find, oh, he's dating so-and-so. Oh, now I understand, right? So instead of being focused on myself and what I happen to like and going to hang out at the bar with the guys or whatever, suddenly I'm acting honorable, upright, uh, etc. right? So this is what I'm talking about. Um, and so... Uh, When we talk about charity, God's love for us, our participation in God's love, we're talking about this. We're talking about a love that elevates us so that we see the meaning of things and and we we want to know what God knows. We want to participate in all the beauty and glory of the world and and of the afterlife. We, We want to know the saints. It brings us out of ourselves. We want to improve our behavior. We don't want to be such schleps anymore, right? Uh, When we encounter this kind of charity. So again, it's not just affection. Uh, We're talking about something more like commitment, devotion, submission. I'm going to talk about that. This is a, a tough word. Submission, of course, is more familiar to us in religious circles in Islam, which is, I believe that's what Islam means, is submission. Um, And of course, to many of our ears, that sounds like it's something that limits one's freedom and it's a little scary. Um, But there's something really important about it. To submit to another person, uh, to to allow another person to make judgments for me is to be, again, drawn out of my own kind of um, self-referential view. So here's another example. My youngest sister, she was kind of a, not, not really a, a goth, the, the term didn't really exist back then, but maybe a bit of a hipster type um, before the letter. Uh, and uh, she met a guy who was a big fan of heavy metal and, and football. And guess who likes football now? <laughs> my, my sister's a big Green Bay Packer fan. And um, we never, you know, growing up, we never would have guessed it. She didn't like football at all. And um, well, so someone else, uh, because she is connected to this person who has different interests, her tastes change. And that, that takes an act of submission, right? That to say like, I will go where you go. You know, on, on this point, I'm going to do what you want. Okay, there's something very beautiful about that. And when we submit to God and we say, I will do what you want, uh, this unlocks for us all kinds of potentials in the cosmos because now we see things from the point of view of the creator and not our limited point of view, right? We start to have that unlocked for us. Uh, so other words that go along with this idea of love, uh, I, I love the idea of devotion, right? Uh, when you're devoted to something, um, there might be days, if, if you're a, a painter and you're devoted to painting, there might be some days you don't feel like painting, but you realize I've got to do it. I have, to, I have to work on this devotion to painting if I'm going to be a good painter. 
Um, if I'm going to be uh, you know, a good monk, I have to work on being devoted to my brothers, being devoted to the liturgy and to the rule of St. Benedict. Um, and there's something pious about this. There's something persevering about it. There's a kind of consecration that takes place. There is steadfastness and fidelity involved. So this is what we want to look at. Where, where do I need to work on my perseverance, my steadfastness, my fidelity, my commitment? What am I committed to? Um, and is it the right thing? Is it what God is asking me to be committed to? So, um, uh, the other thing that really struck me in preparation, so I'm, I'm going to try to make this as orderly as possible, but I'm going to be giving you sort of episodes in my own thinking, and I hope that they make sense to you. So when I was contemplating the image of the Sacred Heart, thinking about how we have this ambivalence about hearts in our culture, you know, when, when we say for Valentine's Day, we use the hearts, you know, but again, that, that means more like affection. It doesn't, if, if you're really in love with somebody or, you know, you, you don't need a, a Hallmark holiday, you know, you, what you need is a, a daily routine where you make sure you tell this person or show them that, right? You, where I make that person a priority in my life. So when the heart goes missing, I, I, that made me think right away of C.S. Lewis, um, he wrote a book in the 1950s. It's actually a collection of three lectures he gave called The Abolition of Man. But the first uh, lecture is called Men Without Chests. And his uh, argument in there, I, I went and reread this book in preparation for this homily. And I've, you know, I've read it several times. But this time it was shocking to me how prophetic it is. Uh, it's a very short book. It's only about 90 pages. And... Um, I mentioned that because it's, it's the easiest book on the list I put here. So um, if you wanted to read something, that would be it. Um, but the idea is that part of what happens, and he's talking, he doesn't use the word heart. Um, uh, most of the time he's talking about chest or what uh, the ancient philosophers would have called spiritedness or thumos. That's the Greek term, thumos. Um, it's all over ancient Greek philosophy and uh, somewhat in Latin philosophy as well. And it goes into uh, Christian theology through the Greek fathers. And it has to do with um, this, this place where we experience anger and sadness in particular. And the idea is if you train this well, uh, then you will end up virtuous. You will end up courageous. Uh, moderate, temperate, uh, you will end up prudent, etc. If you don't train the thumos, you will end up angry, lustful, proud, all those problematic things. Um, but what happens when that whole area goes missing? And how does it go missing? It goes missing because, um, I'll use one example, I think there are many interrelated examples. In the scientific worldview, uh, let's talk about the before that, before the scientific worldview. People looked at the world and saw, say, um, a horse and thought about why is there a horse? Well, we have horses because they're strong, they're fast, they're intelligent. You can ride them into battle. You can hook them up to carts and they can, they can move you around quickly. They can help with labor by... by um, uh, bearing loads of various kinds. 
Um, and so when we breed horses, we breed horses for all the best qualities in horses. And we love our horses because they do these things for us. When we look at wood, we think of all the, the great things of trees that provide us with wood, different types of wood for different types of objects that we want to make. We think of the warmth that comes from fire, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, we see the, cre the creatures of the world according to the purpose for which God made them. And then we see that different creatures have different values, the highest value being human beings. Uh, but there's a natural hierarchy of values that think certain things are more <coughs> valuable than others. And um, the scientific worldview utterly collapses this, this more contemplative worldview. So a contemplative worldview, you're looking at the world to see what things are. What, what is this thing? And what I mean by what it is, is what is its purpose? Why is it here? Um, what did God intend by making this object, right? And um, the scientific worldview says, what is this thing? And by that means like, what is its chemical construction? How could I decompose it? We say, what is a horse? I might kill the horse and, and dissect it to figure out what the horse is. And I might say, well, horses, uh, um, you know, they, they're, uh, they can be described in, in reductive scientific terms. And then they can be used for various sorts of things uh, unrelated to what, um, uh, say, God intended. Uh, we can find all kinds of uses for uh, things in the world. To some extent, technology is all about that. It's all about manipulating the world with a view of just making it more like what we would have done if we would have created it. Right? Um, and so this starts to, we lose track of the idea that things come to us, they're given to us. Uh, we, don't, we don't just discover them, they, they, they're constitutive of the world. And if we want to live good lives and we want to recognize value and we want to find a good place in the world, we need to discipline ourselves to see things the right way. So for instance, uh, one of the things, uh, parents naturally do this, uh, you know, it's more important to eat healthy food when you're a child than to eat cookies. It's fun to eat cookies. But uh, parents will oftentimes say things to children like, you can have a cookie when you finish your broccoli, right? So we put a higher value on the broccoli in a certain way. Or we, we show the correct values of each thing. Like a cookie has its proper place. It's dessert, right? It's not breakfast. Um, and uh, one of the things we find when we go off to college is that, uh, hey, we can do whatever we want. If you want to have pizza and beer for breakfast, why not, right? But you see, that's, that's changing the values of everything, and it's really risky. But this is uh, why a teacher of mine from high school said that college is uh, second kindergarten, <laughs> because everybody reverts to kind of a level of self-seeking that uh, parents have spent 18 years trying to kick out of them, you know? And, um, and so that's, a, that's actually a big problem, I think. Our educational system is, is at the heart of this problem, but I'm not gonna talk about that today because what, what we wanna talk about is what we can do for ourselves first. So, um, what, what gives value is just what people happen to feel about a thing at the moment, right? So this is why um, uh, in this worldview, a guy can be obsessed with some woman today and a different woman the next day, just how he happens to feel. There isn't a consistency about it. Um, there also is no reference to say, uh, 
maybe my feelings for things need to change rather than me try to get things that make me feel good. So another thing uh, I think parents are aware of uh, is, I, I mentioned broccoli, that's kind of a funny thing because the first president, Bush, said he didn't like broccoli. He got all this uh, complaining from parents who've been trying so hard to get their kids to eat broccoli. Not in like it when I was younger either, and now I really like it. Um, I didn't like uh, Mozart's music very much when I was younger. Uh, my mother is a big Beethoven fan, so I grew up listening to Beethoven. And by contrast, I thought Mozart was simplistic and boring. And then I got to college and I studied music, and I had professor after professor say, Mozart is the greatest composer ever. And I thought, hmm, well, maybe they're wrong. But then again, that would be really a, a questionable thing because they know a lot more than I do. And then I started to understand Mozart and I thought, um, while I still, if, if um, I'm just looking to relax and enjoy myself, I might more often choose Beethoven. Beethoven's not far behind. But if you had to press me, if you said, who's the greatest composer of all time, I would have to say Mozart. Um, and that's something I had to learn. That's not something I just felt right away when I heard his music. And of course, part of the problem with music is we usually hear the most cliche parts of a composer's uh, oeuvre. So, you know, I grew up thinking of Mozart's the dun, bum, 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 and that's it. Like, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, he wrote a lot more than that. <laughs> you know, like, we have a, a disc set of his whole output that's like 100 discs or something, and he died when he was 35. Um, so, uh, so he's obviously a better composer than I am. Uh, and that means I have to train myself to recognize, that's good, train myself to recognize broccoli is healthy. Train myself to recognize that getting sleep is more important than staying up and watching David Letterman or whatever. Um, choosing to act on, on the objective values that the world presents me, right? Um, this is difficult. When I first read Max Scheler's book, uh, Ressentiment, which is on this list, I was in the monastery and had been for quite some time. And he begins by saying that there's a natural hierarchy of values in the world. And I actually had a negative reaction to that when I read it, just to kind of a, a quick um, response, like, well, who are you to say that? And then I, I realized, but he's right. And part of what he's saying is that uh, this phenomenon of ressentiment, a kind of resentment against the world, wants to overthrow this hierarchy because I don't want to submit to objective values. I want to be able to choose my values, right? And so I get resentful because, um, because Mozart's a better composer than I am. <laughs> Say, well, he's not that great. I have the right to prefer Leonard Bernstein or myself. Thank you. And uh, this gives rise to all kinds of problems. And again, it, it affects our hearts. It poisons our hearts. Um, so one place we can start addressing this again is learning to appropriate for ourselves true values uh, and, and to figure out how to do that. Now, obviously, a true value would be eternal life, right? So to put that first in whatever way we're not currently. Um, and let's see. Uh, so just to summarize this, this first section here, uh, to rediscover what is meant by the heart. In the Bible, as well as in the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle, 
The heart has thoughts. Uh, Aristotle thought the brain was for cooling blood. He thought thinking went on in the heart. And, um, but in both cases, in the Bible and in Aristotle, when they talked about thinking, it's less the sort of uh, rationalism that comes out of the Enlightenment, just sort of pure thinking. It's, it's thinking for purpose. It's thinking with the tradition. It's thinking with virtue. So it's, it's, it's more integrated. It's not abstracted from my actual life uh, or from the life of persons who went before me and gave me what I have. Uh, the heart is the place of decisive commitment, the place of stabilization of good habits or bad habits. It's the place where I intend to submit myself to something greater than myself and change my behavior because it's worth it to be devoted to God, to marriage, to whatever it is that, that's worth submitting to. Um, to submit myself to something that's more awesome than I am. And that's where I'm, I'm going to switch gears here in a moment and talk about that. Uh, the heart is the place that integrates reason and emotion. When this is missing, we tend to, to uh, be, suffer whiplash between being rationalists, uh, enlightenment reasoners, abstract reasoners, scientific brains in vats, or we become sentimental or merely hormones and desires that need, um, yeah, boy, I'd like that piece of Grubhub. Okay, it's out of the way, <laughs> right? Um, the internet is terrible for that. You know, uh, the internet doesn't give you a chance to think like, do I really want to act on this <coughs> desire or not? Because all you have to do is click, 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 right? So um, uh, I, I personally think the internet is, is the greatest threat to monastic life at the moment, but um, we're pretty good about it, but I, I'm not sure all the brothers would agree with me. But I'm the superior, so they have to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Our whole world has been reshaped by a new anthropology, a new idea of what man is. And it, it began by placing the primacy on reason, um, displacing older ideas of the heart, of character, of devotion, of purpose, of virtue, and then it treats the body not as what St. John Paul II called the sacrament of the person, but the body is just kind of semi-autonomous machine. Uh, we talk about fueling our bodies, right? And, um, but it, we, it, we also just kind of let our bodies go to seed in various ways. So we're in danger of losing what makes man, man. And that's why C.S. Uh, Lewis' essay is called The Abolition of Man, because when we lose our hearts, we lose what it is that makes us human beings. Um, now, I mentioned at the beginning of my homily, and I, I didn't follow up on this all that well. Um, some of you who've been around uh, Chicago for a while might remember 24 years ago when the House of Blues opened uh, uptown. And they got in a dispute with Cardinal Bernadine and other, uh, the Catholic League and the Chicago Council of Rabbis uh, because they used the symbol of the Sacred Heart as their logo. And Cardinal Bernadine says, you can't do that. And they eventually were convinced to use a different logo. Uh, the Council of Rabbis were interested in this because uh, they said, it's not right to take someone else's religious symbolism and use it for commercial purposes like this. So it was a really interesting thing. The other piece of this that I found so interesting is this idea that the heart with a crown of thorns uh, would somehow be equated with blues music 
especially because I think the idea is that, that uh, so the crown of thorns, obviously, blues represents music that's uh, grown up under oppression, but the heart means it's authentic, it's, it's got lots of feeling and so on, and this sort of thing. And uh, having been in popular music as well, I can say that there are lots of problems with the, sort of a naive equation of, of this idea of the heart with blues music, and it's somewhat denigrating to blues musicians. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so I want to take a different approach to this problem uh, and uh, talk about Hans Urs von Balthasar. How many of you have heard of von Balthasar? A couple people. He was a Swiss theologian in the 20th century. Um, he might turn out to be the most important 20th century theologian. Uh, perhaps... Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger or uh, John Paul II will be, we'll see. But he was uh, immensely influential, so much so that uh, even though he was uh, a simple priest at the end of his life, John Paul II was planning to make him a cardinal of the church, but he died before he received uh, this honor, this distinction. Um, he was called by, I think, Henri de Lubac, another great theologian, uh, the most cultured man of the age, uh, he was an incredible musician, had read, somehow managed to read everything, but he also managed to have time to be spiritual director to a woman named Adrienne von Speyer, who was a mystic, and he transcribed many of her visions and uh, ex her explanations, especially of the writings of St. John the Evangelist. Uh, he wrote a seven-volume theological aesthetics, which I don't, I don't recommend you try to read. <laughs> it's very difficult. I did put one of his books on the list. Uh, Love Alone is Credible. Uh, that's a great, great, great book. Um, and why did he do this? And, and it's considered a really important book by people who pay attention to it. But why would, why would he pay attention to beauty? So his, the book is called The Glory of the Lord. And uh, the idea in brief here is that uh, there are what we call three primary transcendentals that describe God, uh, goodness, truth, and beauty. And they all are related to each other. They're all kind of one thing, but we see them under different aspects. So we, when we apprehend the truth, uh, Jesus Christ said, I am the truth, right? We're, we're somehow apprehending God. Uh, when we act in goodness, when we, when we recognize the good, we're seeing something of God's manifestation. But it's also true that when we see beauty, we see something of, of God's essence being made manifest. We see something of God's glory shining out from a form, right? So, um, and again, it's, it's not, we're not talking just about a kind of uh, aestheteness, right? We're talking about something where we encounter something that's greater than we are. And we were taken aback. Uh, when I was a sophomore in uh, high school, I went on a school trip to France with my French class. And um, I was excited about seeing castles. I, I, was, I thought this would be really fun. But I was changed by seeing cathedrals. I could not believe, especially the cathedral at Rennes, it just floored me. I, I, I couldn't get enough of looking at it. I could have stayed there all day just looking at this cathedral. Notre Dame, of course, was my, my second favorite. I would have said the same thing about Notre Dame, except we went to see Rheim afterward. 
And uh, now today I would say Notre Dame is probably the more beautiful of the two. Rem is more ornate. It's got lots and lots and lots of little details and it's overwhelming, just overwhelming for a 15 year old, you know? And uh, so we're talking about this apprehension of beauty. It's, it's that, um, uh, that, that sense of uncanniness that we get sometimes at a sunset, right? Or, or when we uh, go to Niagara Falls and we think, yeah, Niagara Falls, so I'm sure it'll be interesting, a lot of water falling down. And then you get there and you see it and you think, whoa, right? Or you go to the Grand Canyon. I've not been to the Grand Canyon, but everyone I know who's gone to the Grand Canyon says, you think you're ready for it until you see it. And then you think, oh my God, I am so small, <laughs> right? So it's this feeling of, of being in the presence of something that's greater than I am. That, that's mysteriously awesome, right? And somehow God is in that experience. He's communicating something of being to us through that experience. So this idea of the glory of the Lord is uh, this experience of encountering God that changes us. This is where I want to read this poem, The Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rilke, one of my favorite poems. Uh, and a quick comment on it. So this is uh, about a statue of Apollo that's missing his head, basically. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit. And yet, his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise, the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise, this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not from all borders of itself burst like a star, for here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. And so this experience of beauty so one of the things one Balthazar asks is, we all want to be good, but why? Do we want to be good because we want to be able to say I'm good? Or do we want to be good because we recognize that there's something out there worth being good for, right? And, and so I'm, I'm willing to devote myself to this. Um, and so I, I, I highlighted those two passages because in the first one, uh, his torso is suffused with brilliance from inside. This is... This is uh, von Balthasar's definition of beauty. He gets it mainly from Augustine, who was a great aesthetician uh, in his day, that we see this, and it's an embodiment, right? Beauty is something we encounter because we are in the material world. Uh, and part of what makes something beautiful is its proportions, right? So I mentioned that about the Grand Canyon, something about the proportions and the huge size of this uh, makes it beautiful, and so there's this kind of glory that shines out from it and makes us feel reticent to say too much. It makes us want to remember this and be different afterward. Uh, and that's exactly what happens at the end. This beautiful object is somehow calling me into question, calling me to account. Am I worthy of this object? You know, am I worthy to share culture with the people who built Rem Cathedral? Um, I'm not sure. That's, that's, a, that's a, an achievement that we're so far from, from uh, accomplishing. Uh, you know, and that, that'll be the next poem. That we'll talk about that. Um, 
So again, without beauty, truth devolves into a kind of rationalism. And goodness just becomes a form of expressivism or just what is good is what I think is good as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? (laughs) But there isn't, uh, beauty shocks us out of that and, and challenges us to think that some things are more important than other things, regardless of whether I like the fact or not. It's, it's, it doesn't matter what I think or desire. Um, I have to conform my desires to the truth of the thing. And that requires a kind of self-abnegation, self-renunciation. Um, I was told by two different teachers when I was studying music, train yourself to like good music, right? And uh, the first time I heard this, I was a little, I was a teenager and I thought, yeah, well, of course, I'm, of course an old guy is gonna say that. He's probably younger than I am now. Um, the second time I heard it, I, I started to think, yeah, there's a lot more music out there than I thought. And um, my tastes aren't necessarily very refined. Uh, I might make some mistakes. And this would cause me to lose out on certain types of experiences that other people think are important. So if I can't... So here's another thing I want to really make plain about this part of my talk today. If you don't like Mozart, that's okay. Okay? But then I think, let me, let me speak for myself. Um, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of, say, the, the paintings of Klimt, let's say. Or, uh, or I actually have a difficult time with Raphael's paintings. They, they seem a little too perfect to me in some way. Uh, but I'll say this about that judgment that I just made. That's my deficiency. It's not that Raphael is actually not a good artist. <laughs> it's that... I, I'm not perfect, and so certain things that other people see, especially connoisseurs of art, I can't see. Um, I, can't tell a, uh, I can't tell a really good wine from uh, a mediocre wine. I can tell a really good wine from a bad wine, <laughs> okay? And it's not really important for me as a monk to be able to make that distinction, but it's important for me to acknowledge that some people can, and those people should... Uh, be respected for that expertise that they have. That's not uh, any time that we can assign objective values to things in the world. This is actually a good thing. And if I can't do it, I have to rely on somebody else to do it for me. And then I humble myself and I say, I defer to this person's judgment because he knows more about this than I do. Uh, I was saying this to uh, the guys in class yesterday that if I have to make a judgment on history that seems like it's a, a bit outside the sleeve of what normal historians would say, I would check it with my historian friends before I would voice it out loud. Because uh, I don't, I'm not a historian, and um, I love history, and I love talking about it. Um, but I don't trust my judgment all the time because I'm not a historian. So uh, things that seem important to me, um, I might be right. You know, it's always the case that sometimes people outside the system can see things that the people inside the system can't see. But it's good to cultivate a certain habit of humility uh, in these cases. Um, Learn to love what is truly worthy of your love. Purify your taste, purify your heart, dignify your love. Um, I want to say a little bit about singing in the liturgy, and then we're going to hear this poem recited, and then I'm going to open up to questions, because I'm sure uh, everything I said hasn't been completely obvious. Um, The liturgy is really interesting. The liturgy is the, is the fountainhead of, of Western art, really. You know, when we're talking about 
Notre Dame or when we're talking about Western arts, it grows up in churches. When we're talking about Western music, it comes out of church. Uh, when we talk about uh, the way people dress, uh, fashions at court and so on, they're, they're often connected to the church in some way. Um, and when we, when we pray, uh, I was asked this uh, for a talk that I gave for the, a, a group with Lumen Christie Institute a couple weeks ago. Why, why for morning prayer and evening prayer do we have to pray psalms? And part of my response to that is psalms are poems. Uh, poetry is beautiful. It's sublime. It, poetry says more than it says, if I can put it that way. And anytime we're praising God, we can't find the words to praise God because God is always beyond anything we can think. So the church gives us these words, which are, are understandable on one level, but they're also mysterious because poetry is always like that. Poetry always has uh, layers of meanings. And, and you can't get all those meanings out of it unless you actually speak it to some extent because a lot depends on the rhythm and the, the actual way that you express. And you'll see with this, this guy who does this excellent poetry recital, how he interprets. Uh, because if you're just reading it in, in your head, it's, you're not going to get that interpretation. So when we, when we pray the Psalms, it's really important how we interpret them in the way that we sing them, in the way that we sing them together, where we sing them in the liturgy and so on. Poetry appeals to the whole person. They're intellectual, they're sensitive and emotional. Uh, but they also appear, appeal to the spirited part of us by, by being beautiful. Uh, they, they bring out of us a certain kind of conviction. We hear a good poem, we say, yes, that's true, even if we can't explain why it's true. Um, an anecdote I love to tell, there, there are two of them that are related to each other. Uh, art says things in ways that you can't say in other ways. So <clears throat> um, Robert Schumann, wrote a piano etude. He's an early 19th century composer. And uh, he played it for one of his friends, and the friend said, uh, oh, that's wonderful, but what does it mean? And Schumann sat down and played it again. <laughs> Someone asked uh, the, the filmmaker, filmmaker uh, Kislowski what one of his trilogy films meant, Red, White, and Blue, or uh, Blue Blanc et Rouge, probably. And uh, he said, if I could tell you that, I wouldn't have made the movie. <laughs> you have to watch the movie to understand what I'm trying to say because uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a treatise, it's a movie, right? So psalms are poetry. They're not, they're not prayers that the church thought out ahead of time, but they were an inherited part of our scripture that prophesied the coming of our Lord and inspires us then. Um, liturgy is prayer of a public type so it, it takes us out of ourselves. We have to participate with other people. Uh, all good art does this. It takes us out of ourselves. It, it connects us to other people in a certain way. Uh, we're struck oftentimes by the, the aptness of a psalm. Suddenly a psalm text will jump out in a way that didn't happen before. We think, wow, that's, that, there's a truth in there I never saw before. And if we get to choose what we pray, that won't happen, right? We won't be surprised. Um, we won't be surprised by the strangeness of the poetic phrase. Um, liturgy should be sung as well because it's about more than a meaning that I can master. And so it's something that has to engage everything in me. And so we sing with our bodies. 
We hear the music with our, with our bodies, with our ears and our minds. We feel the rhythm. We feel the, the harmony. Uh, we hear other person's voices that inspire us, maybe distract us sometimes. Um, but again, it forces us out of ourselves, moves us toward uh, God's sacred heart, the ineffable God. Um, and I'll just observe this, as music has been reduced, its importance in church liturgy has been reduced, liturgy becomes more rational and intellectual. What I really want is a good uh, message from the homily, right? We wouldn't think of saying, what I really want is the singing to be worthy of God. <laughs> we want the priest to tell us what it means. It's intellectualized or it becomes sentimental. I love it when we sing this hymn at Mass. I miss it when we don't, you know. Um, and again, you know, we all, I don't want to make fun of anybody here. We all are working on purifying our hearts. We all will go for the intellectual, the sentimental at various times. That's to be human. Um, but we should recognize this again, that we want to keep working to get at the mystery part of it. Um, so uh, before I conclude, let's, uh, let's just listen to this poem. Let me say a little bit about David Jones. He is a Catholic convert. Uh, he, was, he fought for four years in the trenches, except for six months when he was injured in World War I. He was not a poet by training. He was uh, a craftsman. And so he would not have been considered in English society to be an educated man in the sense that he went to a trade school to learn uh, typesetting and art and so on. And when uh, modern poetry started uh, making the rounds in the teens and 20s, he, he looked at this and he said, ah, I can do better than that. <laughs> so he started writing poetry and it's phenomenal. But anyway, it's important for you to understand that he's a craftsman because this poem deals with the problem of modern sort of mass produced stuff. So when, he, when the, the guy who's gonna read the poem, when he talks about sort of running his hand along uh, different things, David Jones experienced this. He, he could touch something and tell you if it was good or not. I can't do that, I'm not a craftsman. Um, I don't have the eye or the touch, right? I could tell you if a, an opera aria is being sung well or badly. Um, so anyway, just, uh, you, got, you have the text here if you wanna look at it, but just uh, let's listen to this here. Hi, I'm, I'm Thomas Mines, and I'll be doing AAA Domine Deus by David Jones. I said, ah, oh, what should I write? I inquired up and down. He's tricked me before with his manifold lurking places. I looked very simple at the door. I've looked for a long while at the textures and contours. I've run a hand over the trivial intersections. I've journeyed among the dead forms. Causation projects from pillar to pylon. I have tired the eyes of the mind regarding the colors and lights. I have felt for his wounds in nozzles and containers. I have wondered for the automatic devices. I've tested the inane patterns without prejudice. I have been on my guard, not to condemn the unfamiliar, for it is easy to miss him at the turn of a civilization. I've watched the wheels go round, in case I might see the living creatures, like the appearance of lambs, 
in case I might see the living God projected from the machine. I had said to the perfected steel, be my sister. And for the glassy towers, I thought I felt some beginnings of this creature. But A-A-A, Domine Deus. My hands found the glazed work, unrefined, and the terrible crystal, a stage paste. I dominate days. <laughs> so Jones is looking for Christ in all of these things. And his experience is that he's found in things of quality, things that are worthy of being valued, and mass-produced windows uh, and, and a fake uh, you know, <coughs> stage paste, uh, uh, fake ornamentation rather than real stone or something like that. He, he wants to give modernity the benefit of the doubt. He's really trying. He's looking at machines and trying to see that God might reveal himself in the machine, but he's dubious. It's not, she, he hasn't had a lot of success, right? And this is part of the problem is we've set up a whole world in which um, the scientific technological point of view makes it very hard to assign these objective values, very hard to assent with our hearts to things as they are. You know, um, another experience I had at Notre Dame is uh, we got to climb around in some of the towers and you, you go up these steps and in, in these back staircases, there are gargoyles that you can only see by going there. And uh, the question I like to ask today is like, if you had your run of the, the Sears Tower, Willis Tower, uh, uh, what would you find in the nooks and crannies? And you wouldn't find that some craftsman had made a gargoyle. You might find a copy machine or, or um, you know, a desk or something. Uh, and so this is, this is a project for us to recover these things. Uh, and this is, uh, let me read my last paragraph here so I can um, end uh, coherently. So David Jones, one of his quotes is, the mass makes sense of everything. The mass liturgy makes sense of everything. It is the place where we have our thoughts, our emotions, and our hearts purified by an encounter with the consuming fire of God's love. Our commitment is how we practice love for God and for the church, Christ's body. This is why the liturgy should never be an ideological battleground, nor should there be annoyances over rubrics or fussiness. Nor should we try to adapt liturgy to people of today because we risk fundamentally deforming the liturgy after the pattern of our deformed selves. Rather, let us seek to encounter in the liturgy Christ, the high priest, who is the agent of all our actions there. And let us pray that the Holy Spirit who brooded over the chaos before creation will create a new and pure heart within us and be that steadfast spirit that sanctifies us. Thank you very much. Um, any questions before we have to go pray? And please, no, no, there are no dumb questions. I realize that I'm covering a lot of ground here. <laughs> yes.
Um, we've, we've heard about the body with mm -hmm. behavior and our actions in the physical world. Mm -hmm. We've heard about the mind, the consciousness, <coughs> and of course the heart. Mm -hmm. Where does the soul fit in? The soul, yeah, good question. Um, the soul is the, the organizing principle of the body. Um, it's that part of us that, that uh, survives after the body dies, but it's, of course, not in its complete state. Um, so it's us, you know, it's who we are. Um, and uh, the soul itself is understood to have these different faculties, you know, the intellect, the will, and the emotions. And so these are, these are parts of the soul in a sense, but it's the thing that organizes it all together. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think that any of you monks will write your own book and have it published or poetry? <laughs> of poetry? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've written a couple poems that have been in our newsletter. Um, I'm not sure I have enough to make a whole book. Uh, and I'm not sure any, any other brothers are writing with any frequency. Um, it would be nice. I mean, it's, it's de very demanding to write good poetry, you know. Um, so that's been a kind of a, a place where I've been reticent. <laughs> I, I often think, uh, you know, anything I could say, Gerard Manley Hopkins has already said better. Yeah, go ahead. So I have a, a question that is similar to the one mm. Paul asked. In one of my recent conferences, I introduced briefly the teaching of Vagrius that we are minds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions, I believe it was John Kim who asked this question, uh, you know, what, how does that relate to the heart? Mm -hmm. um, how would you relate all of what you've, you've taught about the role of the heart and its centrality to, say, the, the Evagrian anthropology, which places the mind really at the, at the center? Um, well, I think w what you get is, uh, with Evagrius, again, is, is a fully integrated self. So his idea of knowledge is much closer to what you get in um, Genesis 3 or Genesis 2. Is that right? Uh, so when Adam knows Eve, and this is a sign of love and commitment. Um, so it's all these things pulling in the same direction. Uh, and, uh, but yes, it is the case that the reason being the part of a, the higher part of the spirit, in a sense, has to inform the heart uh, and discipline the heart to choose. I, I think the thing about the heart is it's, it's about the will, right? So it's one thing to know that I have to do something. It's another thing to figure out a way to discipline myself to actually do it and to, to make that a priority. Um, it's very easy. If we don't think about our hearts, what I find is very easy to do is that um, we just uh, fall prey to lots of distractions because they just kind of come at us. So, that, I mean, this is another thing we've, we've seen in the monastery a lot is that um, it's, it's easy to find a distraction, a reason for why I didn't get something done. But what that means is I, if, if the thing I had to get done was something I had to get done, I, I haven't yet found the resources for saying this is really of a higher value than those other things. And so I need to get it done. Um, so, uh, so the mind is what tests to make sure that uh, it, it fits in this scheme.
But the mind, what Lewis says is the mind itself, um, syllogisms won't get us through the heat of battle. We need the spiritedness that gives us courage to, to press on. It's also the case that to learn things requires a certain spiritedness, right? So all these faculties of the soul, we, we have to learn to coordinate them so they all pull toward God. But I, I hope that answers your question. Yes, yeah. All right. Good. Um, so I will hand things back over to Father Timothy. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your listening. And yes, I, I want to thank uh, Prior Peter, um, especially uh, given the fact that um, he didn't know until just a few days ago he was going to be delivering this talk. Um, so I, uh, we're, I'm very grateful. I know that uh, uh, the Oblate community is very grateful for uh, your commitment as, as a teacher um, in, in any number of different ways to forming our community. So thank you very much. Let's conclude with uh, a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Monks, Pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us.